Welcome to Metro Connection. I'm Rebecca Shear, and today our theme is house and home. They, of course, say there's no place like home, but today's show is going to take us to all different kinds of homes all over the place. We'll visit a 19th century cabin, which some hikers have moved 100 miles and started to rebuild. Here was a structure that had stood since 1878, and the woman was just going to tear it down. We'll look at Marilyn's plans to create a better home for wild plants and animals. Fifty years from now, I think folks are going to say they really did a good thing in protecting these areas. And in a little twist on the theme, we'll tip our hats on this 40th anniversary of Home Rule, which gave D.C. the right to elect its own political leaders. Whip counts were done, and it was not, the, the version, the Senate version, was not going to pass. Before we get to all that, though, we're talking about house and home, right? But what happens when... All right, I'm Rebecca. For the time being, anyway. My name is Lamar. Lamar, nice to meet you. You don't have either one. Can you talk about where we are right now? Currently, we are at Sasha Bruce's home on 8th Street, Maryland Avenue. That's 8th Street and Maryland Avenue Northeast. And the Sasha Bruce home, or house, is D.C.'s only short-term shelter for young people ages 11 to 17. Young people like Lamar a sophomore at Anacostia High School. What first brought me here was, like, I'm going through substance abuse with drugs, and my father had kicked me out on the street, so I was living on the street for four, 24 hours, and then I had to go to school the next day, so I, I said, I can't live on the street and still try to go to school, so I might go to 6th District, the police department station, and see what they can do and see what they can take me to PIW or something like that. And they um, took me here that same day to Sasha Bruce. Tragic as his story may be, Lamar is actually one of the lucky ones. Between February and May of this year, Sasha Bruce House had to turn away at least 150 unaccompanied minor children due to lack of space. A year ago at this time, we had 16 beds through uh, this program and another program that no longer exists, specifically for homeless and runaway kids. Jim Beck is the development director for Sasha Bruce Youth Work, which provides all sorts of support services for D.C.'s youth, including, of course, the Sasha Bruce House. And uh, now we have five, and the city doesn't pay for any of those. Instead, the federal government pays for those five beds. The city, historically, through Child and Family Services and Department of Youth Rehabilitation Services, had appreciated the need for prevention of kids getting in the system. And so they had made available funds specifically for shelter for unaccompanied youth. But they changed that, and those no longer exist just in the past year. And so the city doesn't pay for any emergency shelter for unaccompanied homeless youth. But that may soon change. I recently met with David A. Burns. David Burns, director of the Department of Human Services. That's the agency that oversees the provision of homeless services in D.C. And he says the city has agreed to fund a new emergency shelter with six beds. It'll give unaccompanied minors in the district a place to stay. For as much as for two weeks with a parental or court approval to allow the kids to stay there while we were working on the other issues. You know, like behavioral problems, substance abuse. And so if the average is a one-week stay, that provides a place for up to 300 children uh, for on an emergency basis throughout the year. But there's one time of year when emergency shelter is especially in demand. 
and it's pretty much upon us. In the city uh, of Washington, D.C., we have what's called a right to shelter on hypothermia nights. That's the nights when the temperature, including the wind chill index, is 32 degrees or lower. So this mayor-appointed group called the Interagency Council on Homelessness has this annual winter plan. The winter plan is a description of all of the different processes that we use, like where are the shelters, what's the capacity that we need, how many uh, people uh, are likely to show up during this period of time, and uh, do we have adequate resources to uh, meet that need. And would you say that under this year's plan there are adequate resources? Uh, Yes. And in a way, no. See, here's the thing about the winter plan. Sasha Bruce had to turn away dozens of kids this past winter, right? That's because, as David Burns admits... What we've discovered in our conversations this year is that the city has never uh, completely addressed or had a definitive plan dealing with those unaccompanied minors, those that are under age 18 under the winter plan. Just this week, the Interagency Council on Homelessness met about the winter plan. The council agreed to cite Sasha Bruce as the first line of defense for unaccompanied minors, unless there's suspicion of abuse and neglect, in which case the D.C. Child and Family Services Agency would step in. But at this same meeting, when the Washington Legal Clinic for the Homeless proposed new language be written into the plan, language that would explicitly require the district to house unaccompanied youth, it was not approved. There are two groups of people that I think should not be in our shelters. The very old and the very young. Councilmember Jim Graham represents Ward 1 and chairs the Committee on Human Services. And he says in terms of homeless people in D.C. this winter... We're projecting a 10% increase in families, a 10% increase in individuals, and we have an enormous problem when it comes to unaccompanied youth. And you put all of that together, we're going to be facing, I think, a crisis situation in the district in terms of homelessness. So naturally, he strongly approves of those six new beds, as, of course, does Jim Beck at Sasha Bruce House. But he echoes Graham's sentiments when he says... It's certainly not enough. You need a comprehensive plan to help young people develop. It's not just shelter. You have to have lots of other supports to make sure that they become stable and and families are, are healthy. Which is why Sasha Bruce House also offers counseling, group sessions, and case management. All these things, Beck says, can not only help combat youth homelessness, but adult homelessness, too. Fifty percent of all adult homeless individuals report having been homeless as youth. So this is why it's so important to intervene quickly for kids that are living on the street or even are at risk of being put out on the street, because we can prevent future adult homelessness. For Anacostia High School sophomore Lamar, he's hoping this will be the last time He's homeless. As soon as I walk out the door, I see me rebuilding my relationship with my father. I see me rebuilding my relationship with my brothers. I see me rebuilding my relationship with my sisters. And I see myself just progressing and just, like, experiencing growth. I want to be with my family. I just want to go home. Time now for On the Coast, our regular segment in which Brian Russo brings us the latest from the eastern shore of Maryland and coastal Delaware. 
And today, Brian catches up with a man he interviewed last November. I'm capable of working. I'm a good paint and drywaller, but like I said, when you get turned down for a dishwasher's job, minimum wage, it hurts your pride. I'm still capable of working. I want to work. Somebody give me a break. Kenny is 61 years old, a Vietnam veteran, and he lost his home a few years ago when the housing bubble burst. When Brian first met Kenny, it wasn't long after Superstorm Sandy swept through the region, a storm Kenny weathered in a tent in the woods. I spent Hurricane Sandy and just what you see, and it was standing up because I didn't go into Diakonia last Thursday. Wow. Diakonia is a homeless shelter in Ocean City, and that's where Brian caught up with Kenny again. Kenny now lives at the shelter, but as he tells Brian, he's done a lot of bouncing around over the past year, including living in the woods and on a houseboat. I'm in Diakonia right now reworking bathrooms and fixing drywall, and uh, I'm not young enough to hang it every day anymore, but as far as that paintbrush and even glazing old-fashioned windows and stuff like this down into historical districts, I know how. How long were you living on the houseboat, and, and when did you have to come back to Diakonia? I was down on the houseboat for about 90 days. Uh, I didn't come back to Diakonia. I went back in that woods. There's more campgrounds and tents set up, and yeah, they'll weather them storms. I know how. We've talked before about how difficult it is to find gainful employment in this seasonal economy. During the summer season, as you said, you had some work. But then when that dried up again, I mean, you and I have talked before, and you mentioned it briefly um, a minute ago, about the competition for these jobs that you, you find yourself applying for. Not only do you find yourself on uh, kind of the older demographic of people applying for those jobs, but even though, as you said, you, you're willing to work cheaply, there are other people that are willing to work even cheaper, and they're the ones that end up getting the jobs. Tell me a little bit about the plight of trying to find work at your age, um, going through all the things that you've been through. They just don't want a 61-year-old man, no matter how physically capable I am. Uh, they think a younger guy can, is faster and move faster. Well, uh, for those employers out here in Ocean City, and I ain't going to name any names, I still move with the best. I might be 61 years old, but uh, I'm a little over 61. I can work with the best and, and this, that, and the other. What was the kind of work that you were doing? You, you mentioned that you were, you know, kind of fixing up and renovating the houseboat that you were living on. What was some of the other work you were doing in amusement parks? Was it was it painting? Was it maintenance? Running the rides. I can, uh, when I say it, everybody knows who I am. I was running the happy swing on one of the amusement parks. I won't name the name, but uh, we can always get the kids to laugh and play. You got to have a, I don't know, a gracious way. Did you find yourself, as you were interacting with families and kids that were, you know, on vacation when you were working that ride, you know, how did that make you feel to, to be doing not just that kind of work, but just work, period? When I think about rides, think about my own kids, they're kind of a ways away from here. Uh, makes me remember that it's been a while since I've seen my own children, that own my grandchildren, because I ain't got money enough to go. What's your plan for the next several months? I know winter's coming up, and you've got a bed here at Diakonia. I mean, once winter passes, you know, are you going to try and, and, and find a new place to live? Are you going to go back to the woods? Is is your next play just trying to find work again? Yeah, it's just work. Uh, well, i got one more shot. Uh, when I turn 62, I can get some kind of Social Security. That's what the only thing i got to look forward to. 
you know, as we sit here and talk about all these things that, that you have, have gone through and lived through and, you know, you've, you've served our country, you have been a huge part of this community in, in the way that it looks, you've painted homes, that, that you know, you, you are a master of your craft. Do you harbor any sense of, like, I guess bitterness that it didn't turn out differently? No, not really. Uh, it is what it is. It's life. Uh, no need to be bitter. Uh, maybe, uh, well, certain things haven't happened. I might be in better shape. Uh, but it's life. Why need to be bitter? That was Kenny, a 61-year-old painter, speaking with Coastal Reporter Brian Russo. Time for a break, but when we get back, the history of home rule. Julius Hobson used to call it the reservation without the buffalo. He said, we got the reservation without the buffalo. That's what we got. That and more is just ahead on Metro Connection here on WAMU 88.5. WAMU News coverage of labor and employment issues is made possible by your contributions and by Matthew Watson in memory of Marjorie Watson. And support for WAMU 88.5's coverage of the environment comes from the Wallace Genetic Foundation, dedicated to the promotion of farmland preservation, the reduction of environmental toxins, and the conservation of natural resources. I'm Rebecca Shear, and welcome back to Metro Connection. Today we're bringing you a show we're calling House and Home. In just a bit, we'll hear why a plan to create a more hospitable home for wild plants and animals is creating a bit of a stir. But first, we'll head out to Jessup, Maryland, a suburban town where you'll find a maximum security prison called the Patuxent Institution. Michael Martinez introduces us to a guitar player who's helping inmates learn how to cope when they return to their homes on the outside. These are the sounds that define the early part of Wayne Kramer's life the explosive guitar riffs he once played for the legendary rock band the MC5. But these days, Kramer begins many of his gigs on a different note, like one he played recently at the Patuxent Institution. I am Wayne Kramer, and uh, I'm an alcoholic and a drug addict. I'm a sober alcoholic and a clean drug addict. I'm known in the world mostly as a guitar player. But for a few years, I was known as 00180190, and I was a federal drug war prisoner. Kramer spent two of the prime years of his life locked up in a federal prison in Kentucky on drug charges. He still finds himself going in and out of American prisons, but what brings him behind bars now is a nonprofit he started called Jail Guitar Doors USA, which donates guitars for inmates to use for rehabilitative therapy. He tells inmates they shouldn't see the guitars as gifts, that the people who donated them want offenders to know someone believes in them while they're in a place where it's easy to feel worthless. They know you want to change for the better, that you want to come out, and you're going to come out, and you're going to rejoin your friends and family. You're going to rejoin us out in the world, and you're going to live next door to me. And, and we want you to be part of the deal. We want you to be part of the world. We want you to participate in the world. And we know that music and art in general is one of the few things that can touch people in their heart. It can change you fundamentally. Kramer treats the inmates at Patuxent to an intimate performance inside its library. Bookshelves and posters line the walls in what might pass for a Spartan junior high school reading room. But he plays one song, made famous by country singer and former San Quentin inmate Merle Haggard, that evokes classic jailhouse images. The warden 
walked a prisoner down the hallway to his doom. Prison is a subject that comes up over and over again in the American songbook, from Lead Belly to Johnny Cash. Randall Nero is in charge at Patuxent. He says music should be a part of how inmates change their behavior and ultimately return to society. We really stress for the offenders the need to go ahead and engage in what I would say is pro-social behavior. And clearly being part of the music program at Patuxent allows them to both uh, develop an appropriate expression of their affect, and also we have the group as their participation is pro-social behavior. The inmates who come to hear Kramer are certainly social. They jump in an invitation to pick up their own guitars for a jam session. One inmate from Alabama in particular turns every head in the room with his soloing ability. Kramer makes it clear that his challenge to the inmates is to use the guitars for more than jamming. He wants them to tell their stories through music. And the day's going to come where things aren't going to, you're going to be out and things aren't going to go your way. And you're going to have a choice to make. You could pick up your pistol or you could pick up your guitar. I'm suggesting you try the guitar this time. That message hits home particularly hard for artist Bartholo, a 47-year-old inmate doing time on an armed robbery charge. He plays guitar in his cell every day at Patuxent, where he says he's written dozens of songs and intends to write more. Some turn to whiskey, some turn to dope, but they're somebody's daughter, so don't give up hope. Songs like Fallen Angels, which Bartholdo wrote in 1999, when the mother of his son was struggling with drug addiction. He says the song has taken on new meaning for him now that he's incarcerated. No matter your current situation, you can do anything. I mean, anyone can do anything if you, if you really want to do it. And no matter, you could be in jail, you could be on drugs. If you want to change yourself and, and turn things around, you can do it. I believe that. Bartholo, who's played in bands before, has dreams of becoming a professional songwriter when he eventually gets out of prison. He keeps journals of lyrics and chord progressions, songs that not only tell his personal story, but also reflect hope. So it only makes sense that Bartholo sings right along with Kramer when he plays one of Bob Marley's most famous songs for the inmates at Patuxent. A chorus they all join, whether they know the words or not. These songs of freedom All I ever had I'm Michael Martinez. You can hear more of artist Bartholo's original song, Fallen Angels, on our website, metroconnection.org. We're going to shift gears now and bring you a different sort of twist on today's house and home show. This one is about home rule. It's been 40 years since President Richard Nixon signed the Home Rule Act, which granted Washington, D.C., an elected mayor and legislature. Before that, Congress and a group of presidentially appointed commissioners pretty much ruled the roost in D.C. They made decisions about everything from how to license your dog to how to become a police officer. Martin Ostermule takes us back through time to when the district got its first taste of political autonomy. December 1973 is technically the moment that the Home Rule Act became law. 
But if you want to understand how that happened, you have to reach back a bit further in time. To talk about the passage of the Act in 1973, you actually have to go back nearly a decade earlier with the passage of the Voting Rights Act in 1965. That's Michael Fontroy, a professor of political science at Howard University who has written extensively about the history of home rule in D.C. He says that the civil rights movement's success with the Voting Rights Act paved the way for district residents to finally govern themselves. Prior to the passage of the Voting Rights Act, the House District Committee had been dominated by conservative Southern Democrats who had always bottled up home rule legislation, notwithstanding the success that it had in the Senate. And so in that way, home rule became a civil rights question for a number of people. Why is it that this majority black city is not allowed to have the political autonomy that it, that it should relative to the rest of the country? Laying the groundwork for the Home Rule Act fell to Michael Fontroy's uncle, Walter Fontroy. In 1971, he was chosen to be the district's first ever non-voting delegate to Congress. And with the strength of the civil rights movement behind him, Fontroy used his perch on the hill to marshal support for a bill granting D.C. home rule. Then he developed a, a map that he carried around with a, with a huge case where he pinpointed all those congressional districts where the black vote was the margin of victory, and that, that's where he would travel. Johnny Barnes, an attorney in D.C. and former head of the ACLU of the nation's capital, was Fontroy's chief of staff on the hill. Barnes says Fontroy not only used the power of oratory to make his case for home rule, but also played a strategic political game with his fellow members of Congress. I would say that was maybe singularly most responsible for our obtaining home rule was the work that he did quietly, uneventfully, behind the scenes, helping members get back uh, for re-election. In 1972, Fontroy landed one of his biggest victories, helping to defeat Representative John McMillan, a South Carolina Democrat who for years had governed D.C. from his perch on the House District Committee. Johnny McMillan refused to bring up a home rule bill. And so Mr. Fontroy went to South Carolina and uh, he joined with a young uh, South Carolinian by the name of John Jenrette. Uh So he went down there and he said to the, to the black folks in South Carolina, I need your help. You don't say help down there. You say help. I need your help. And they helped him. And they got uh, Johnny McMillan out of office. And then Charlie Diggs became the chair of House District mm-hmm. Committee. And that's how we were able to loosen up the, uh, the, the Home Rule Act. But as much as the bill was a historic step forward for the district, the Home Rule it granted the city was still limited. Despite Walter Fontroy's advocacy, the bill prohibited the district from taxing the income of non-residents, leaving the city to lose billions in tax revenue. It also left final budget decisions to Congress, meaning that while D.C. residents paid billions in taxes, the city's purse strings were ultimately controlled from Capitol Hill. Nelson Ryman Snyder was an aide to Charles Diggs, the Michigan Democrat who took over the House District Committee after McMillan lost re-election. He says Diggs had to balance what D.C. residents wanted and what Congress was willing to give. A more liberal Senate bill that gave D.C. more control over its own budget and legislation was a step too far, he says. Whip counts were done, and it was not, the, the version, the Senate version, was not going to pass. And, and Diggs and other Democrats worried that if it went down, it, it wouldn't have maybe bode well for getting anything through in that Congress. The compromise Home Rule bill passed the House with 272 votes and the Senate with 77 votes. In a 1982 interview with the Washington Times, Walter Fontroy said that while the bill wasn't perfect, it was a step forward. We came out with a respectable home rule charter that enabled us to elect our own mayor, our own city council, and give them uh, many delegated 
powers that the Congress had had. Still, Johnny Barton says some advocates for D.C. statehood were nonetheless unhappy with the final product. Julius Hobson used to call it the reservation without the buffalo. He said, we got the reservation without the buffalo. That's what we got. So there were critics. Forty years after the Home Rule Act passed, D.C. finds itself struggling for many of the same things that it didn't get in 1973, such as full voting representation in Congress and budget autonomy. Eleanor Holmes Norton, the district's non-voting delegate to the House, says the district is still stuck between what she says it deserves, full statehood, and what it can get. In the fight toward equality with other Americans, the district has always been forced into incrementalism. Uh, And I don't know if it will ever get out of that, since if you look at even national legislation, that's the way things uh, happen in this diverse country, but we, the, we are trying mightily to get out of it. Johnny Barnes, who supports full statehood, recognizes that the Home Rule Act was a product of compromise. But, he says, its passage still stands as a historic marker in the city's fight for full equality. But a lot of folks have recognized over time that, uh, you know, we, we didn't go far enough, haven't gone far enough, and more needs to be done. But you're mustering the political will, particularly in this climate, so toxic and partisan, it's not easy. And that's why the Home Rule Act was such a, such a victory, even with its, its watered-down uh, principles. I'm Martin Ostermule. Want to hear more from the man who helped D.C. get home rule? We have the full audio of Walter Fontroy's 1982 interview with the Washington Times on our website, metroconnection.org. Symbols of democracy pinned up against the coast. Our house of bureaucracy surrounded by a moat. Citizens of poverty are barely out of sight. The overlords escape near evening, the people on the night. And now, our weekly trip around the region. On today's Door to Door, we visit Brookville, Maryland, and the Columbia Forest area of Arlington, Virginia. My name is Sherry Lewis. I'm 51 years old, and I live in Columbia Forest in Arlington, Virginia. Columbia Forest is located near the intersection of Fairfax, Alexandria, and Arlington counties. We border one side on Fairfax County, and we are about 50 yards away from Alexandria on the other. Well, Columbia Forest started as a planned community, and it was built in 1941. The Army Corps of Engineers designed the houses and supervised their construction. And the street layout was designed to conform to the topography, and so it has lots of curved streets, cul-de-sacs and park areas, and they made an effort to save the existing trees, so it gave the impression of a much more permanent, mature community, and we have a beautiful canopy of trees as a result. Uh, Columbia Forest, like a lot of area around Arlington, was once owned by George Washington, so we have a lot of fun telling friends and relatives that visit that they're on land George Washington once owned. We are going to be getting the trolley coming up Columbia Pike, so we're happy about that. We got a brand new community center, and my son goes to the elementary school. It's a countywide elementary school, and it's a dual immersion Spanish-English program, and a lot of the neighborhood kids go to that, as well as kids from all over the county. We have grocery stores within walking distance. We have the high school pool within walking distance. We have parks within walking distance. We have bicycle trails. We have all this stuff. Thank you.
Karen Montgomery, and I live in the town of Brookville in one of the older houses. The town is up what we now call Georgia Avenue, Route 97, exactly two miles from the crossroads of 108 in Olney. This town has a hot 48 or 49 houses and families in every single house, varying from single women who have been widowed up into thriving families with three young children. Quakers in Brookville help make the history of the town. Brookville would not have had a post office. Brookville would not have had the schools it had if it had not been a Quaker town. It was a town that educated all of its slaves and ex-slaves because the town believed in educating everyone, white or black. So the town has always attracted somewhat eccentric people who are interested in education. I see the town becoming a spot where oldness is respected but not revered for its own sake, that the houses need to be preserved, but the intellectual stimulation needs to continue on and move forward. We heard from Karen Montgomery in Brookville and Sherry Lewis in Columbia Forest. If you'd like us to knock on your door so you can talk about your neighborhood, send an email to metro at wamu.org. You can also send us a tweet. Our handle is at WAMU Metro. And you can find a map of all the doors we've knocked on so far on our website, metroconnection.org. From lost in New Jersey to found in D.C., an artistic masterpiece finds a new home. You can trace sort of a microcosm of Mier's career right here in Washington, and that's what to me makes it so exciting to have these final panels installed right here. It's coming up on Metro Connection here on WAMU 88.5. Welcome back to Metro Connection. I'm Rebecca Shear, and this week we're calling our show House and Home. So, you know the old saying, you can never go home again? So these these are all the extra mosaics that had to be cut off to make them fit where they're going to go. Well, this next story suggests that maybe you actually can. So this was the top, the bottom, and the sides. And the center is going to do something with them. Two of them look like they could be benches. Nice. It's a crisp fall morning at the Center for Hellenic Studies, an institution in northwest D.C. devoted to ancient Greek language and culture. Harvard opened the six-and-a-half-acre campus in 1962, and 51 years later, I'm standing with Hildreth Mier Dunn, Hilly for short, on the circular driveway outside the main building, which houses the center's enormous library. Just yards away from us, a truck-mounted crane is about to lift two massive wooden crates up over the roof and into the courtyard. And the crate is lifting up. It's about two feet off the ground, three feet, four feet. There she goes. Each crate spans the surface area of about six king-size beds. And the crate is higher than most of the trees now, directly above me. And weighs more than two U.S. mail trucks. I have great faith in the power of this crane because I am standing underneath a crate that is, what, 6,700 pounds? And what the crates contain are, in short, masterpieces. 
multicolored marble mosaics depicting each side of the Strait of Gibraltar. Each mosaic contains 46,000 stones from 13 different countries. The panels were designed back in 1960 for Newark, New Jersey's Prudential Center. You know, own a piece of the rock. They lived there until 1998 when the building was remodeled. The artist was Hilly Mier Dunn's grandmother, Hildreth Mier, perhaps the most famous Art Deco muralist you've never heard of. She started working in the 1920s, and you can find her mosaics everywhere, from Radio City Music Hall in New York City to the National Cathedral and National Academy of Sciences in Washington to the State Capitol Building in Lincoln, Nebraska. And yet she sort of got lost in the shuffle. Many people know her, her work. They just don't know that she did it. And up until a few years ago, Catherine Coleman Brower was one of those people. What was it that first drew you to this artist? How long have you been following her? Well, the true story is that my husband and I live in an apartment that was Hildreth Mier's studio. And that was how I learned about Hildreth Mier. Since then, Catherine, or Kathy for short, has become a Mier devotee. Not only is she co-authoring a book about Mier, but she also serves as a spokesperson for the International Hildreth Mier Association, of which Hilly Mier Dunn is vice president. And back in 2009, Kathy curated an exhibition called Walls Speak, the narrative art of Hildreth Mier. Started at St. Bonaventure University's Quick Center for the Arts and traveled to the National Building Museum and then the Museum of Biblical Art in Manhattan. And those panels being heaved over the wall of the Center for Hellenic Studies, their journey also started at the Quick Center, in a way. See, as Hilly explains, back in 2009, when the exhibit opened at St. Bonaventure, the Prudential panels were thought to be lost. So when that exhibition happened in this beautiful catalog, written by Catherine Coleman Brower, came out, the archivist at Prudential took it around to everybody. And all of a sudden, they were like, the panels, we have the panels. They're in storage. Originally, there were actually three panels. The center one depicted the actual Rock of Gibraltar on which Prudential's slogan is based. So it ended up that Prudential donated the center panel to the Newark Museum. As for the other two? They asked us to please help find a a home for, for them. That's us, as in the International Hildreth Mier Association. Now, the panels weren't in such great shape when they were found, so the association raised money to restore them. And in 2011, when the Mier exhibit moved to the National Building Museum in D.C., well, that's when the ball really got rolling, thanks to this guy. I'm Tom Lubke. I'm the secretary of the Commission of Fine Arts. And he heard Kathy Brower give a talk about Hildreth Mier at the National Building Museum. Hildreth Mier was a talented mosaicist and her, her work is in a number of wonderful places, including the Nebraska State Capitol. Now, I grew up in Lincoln, Nebraska, and I was very familiar with this work. So Tom and Kathy eventually got to chatting about the artist and the Prudential murals, and Kathy mentioned that the Hildreth Mier International Association was trying to find a home for two of them. And she just said, you know so many people in Washington or places, maybe there's some idea that you might have about that. And these are beautiful things that show the gates of Gibraltar. And Heracles, a.k.a. Hercules, sailing through the gates of Gibraltar. And I thought it might be really great if there was some institution or place that would really appreciate the subject matter of these murals for what they were. So as it turned out, there is this institution here in Washington called the Center for Hellenic Studies. And I happen to know Richard Williams. Richard Williams being an architect who's done a ton of work at the center. So I called and he said that's a really interesting idea and because they're looking about trying to do something to maybe improve their courtyard or something. So 
he basically took it from there. I think he took the project to the center administration, and they got very excited about it. So excited that now those murals are making a brand new home in the center's courtyard. And the center's director, Gregory Nagy, says it's a perfect fit. The way he sees it, the image on the mosaics, the Strait of Gibraltar, represents the center's commitment to scholarship and the never-ending quest for knowledge. It's the portal to mediate between the known and the unknown. What's more, he says, after the mosaics languished in storage for so many years, their arrival here represents a kind of homecoming. And in ancient Greek, the symbolic word is nostos, which is not only a homecoming, but a return to light and life. And speaking of light, under a sunny blue sky, workmen are maneuvering the first crate as it slowly lowers down into the Center for Hellenic Studies courtyard. Do you want to go that way? All right, Paul, let's swing, swing left. When the crate at last touches ground... All right, we can deal with that. You happy? Yeah, well, I'm happy. Hilly Mir Dunn leads a crowd of staffers and other guests in a round of applause. Yay, guys! Yay! Great job! Great job! You have the biggest smile on your face right Do now. Do I? <laughs> oh, I almost have tears in my eyes. I mean, to not knowing whether they existed or not, to finding out that they do exist, to seeing them needing restoration, raising the money, getting them restored, finding them an incredible home. How more appropriate could this be? And then to see all these people that it takes to get this all to happen, that was quite an experience. An experience that suggests that home sweet home may very well be where the heart is. Or, in this case, where the art is. You'll be able to view the Mier mosaics at the Center for Hellenic Studies via private appointment in just a few months. In the meantime, to see photos of the mosaics and to watch a video of those giant crates being lifted up, up, and away, visit our website, metroconnection.org. So in that last story, Greg Nagy talked about the Miera Mosaic's return to light and life. Well, this next story is all about the latter, life, as in wild life. In Maryland, the Department of Natural Resources, or DNR, is proposing the largest expansion of the state's wildland system since it was created in 1973. And as environment reporter Jonathan Wilson tells us, that proposal is ruffling more than a few feathers. John F. Wilson has been with Maryland's Department of Natural Resources for the better part of three decades, so he should know just how big of a deal the agency's latest wildland expansion proposal really is. It's a pretty big deal. Uh, In fact, the last time that uh, we took a look at potential sites for wildlands was back in 2002. And I think uh, this round is really looking at what I call the last great places in Maryland. The wildlands are Maryland's version of the federal government's wilderness preservation system. Approved by the General Assembly, they can include unique ecological, geological, scenic, and contemplative recreational areas. Right now, the system is comprised of nearly 44,000 acres in 15 counties. 
The new proposal would add 27,000 acres to that total, expanding 17 current wildlands and creating 10 brand new wildland areas. Once these areas are lost, we can't replace them. So I think, you know, in conserving these areas, I think what we have to do is look into the future and say, you know, 50 years from now, I think folks are going to say, you know, they really did a good thing in protecting these areas, and we still have them for our own use and enjoyment. The new areas include 4,000 acres along the Yakagani River in western Maryland's Garrett County. DNR calls this the state's only wild river. 26 different rare, threatened, or endangered species call the river home, among them the green salamander and the hellbender, the largest salamander in North America. In Calvert County, a proposed area in Parker's Creek is home to four globally rare insect species, including the Puritan tiger beetle. All these sites contain either rare vanishing plants or animals or both. Not many people get more enjoyment from Maryland's crop of forested trails than mountain bikers like Todd Bauer. Bauer is the advocacy director for Mid-Atlantic Off-Road Enthusiast, or MORE, a mountain biking club. He says expanding the state's share of wild lands is a good thing. Anytime you can expand and, and preserve tracts of land, um, that's what we're all about. We're all about conservation and preservation of, of the natural lands, and especially areas where people might recreate. Um, so any, anytime you can expand upon that, you know, we're, we completely support those initiatives. But there is one problem, at least from Bauer's point of view. Since 1995, mountain bikers have been prohibited from riding in Maryland wildlands. DNR's John Wilson explains. Basically, in a wild land, you can hunt, uh, you can kayak, you can raft, uh, you can uh, canoe, you can fish, you can trap. You can also hike, run, and even ride a horse on the trails. It's just one of the things prohibited is mechanical conveyance, i.e. a motorized vehicle or the other thing that falls under that is mountain bikes. Todd Bauer says the state's contingent of mountain bikers would love to throw its full support behind DNR's wildland expansion plan if the state reverses its prohibition on mountain bikes, which Bauer says don't do any more damage to trails than horses. But Bauer and other mountain biking advocates have been making the same argument to DNR for years. Their resistance is is that both hikers and equestrians, horses, have been around since colonial times. Um, Unfortunately, we're not in the colonial times any longer. This is a modern society. Wilson says he might be more sympathetic to mountain bikers' concerns about the wildlands if the state didn't already have more than a 1,000 miles of trails available to mountain bikes. But more importantly, like I've told them, is we are developing new mountain bike trails. In fact, we are developing new mountain bike trails out of Deep Creek Lake State Park. We're developing a stack loop system that will connect Harrington Manor with Swallow Falls State park, and we're going to continue to look for new mountain bike opportunities, just not in these areas. Wilson also says that mountain biking wouldn't even really be possible in most of the proposed expansion areas because it's either too steep or too wet. DNR is accepting online comments about the proposed areas until December 9th. After that, it'll be up to the legislature to make the final decisions. I'm Jonathan Wilson.
We have more information about Maryland's proposed wildland areas on our website, metroconnection.org. And if you have an opinion about this proposal, let us know. Our email is metro at wamu.org. We'll head to a different wild place now, Virginia's Shenandoah National Park. At the edge of the park, at the foot of one of the most popular hiking trails in the region, you'll find a house. But not just any house. It's a log cabin that was originally built 135 years ago in 1878 in the rolling farmland near Hancock, Maryland. So what is it doing in Virginia, 100 miles south of its original home? Jacob Fenston has the answer. John Corwith is standing near a pile of 135-year-old logs, trying to make sense of a list scrawled on a sheet of ruled paper. The guy that wrote the drawing when we were taking it apart isn't here. The list has a number for each log, but which log goes where? When I was off doing something else, somebody squashed the plan that I had, which was to draw every log and where it's at, and just make this list of where the logs are stacked. It's a crisp, bright autumn day at the foot of Old Rag Mountain in Shenandoah National Park. There's a constant stream of hikers heading up for the nine-mile loop, but Corwith doesn't have time to hike. I've never been to the top of Old Rag. I've been coming out here for two years, and I haven't, I haven't hiked the mountain yet. Corwith and a dozen or so volunteers with the Potomac Appalachian Trail Club are hard at work rebuilding this cabin that eventually they'll be able to rent out to hikers right here next to the trailhead. The project started two years ago when the cabin's owner got in touch with the trail club. Yeah, my name is Laurie Birch. When Laurie Birch bought a parcel of land in Hancock, Maryland, the previous owners told her she'd probably need to demolish the derelict old cabin on the property. Take it down or even just burn it down or whatever. But she soon found it was actually in pretty good shape. Wood siding had protected the logs from the elements. I found logs that looked like they had just been in pristine condition. But still, it would cost thousands of dollars to restore. I just really wasn't quite sure what to do because I could not afford to put that kind of money in it. And yet I didn't want to see it just deteriorate and fall down. A friend suggested she donate it to the trail club. A couple guys from the club came and looked at the cabin and the location, surrounded by farmland, not hiking trails. When they reported back, they said, great cabin, bad location. I came in and said, can we move it? John Corwith again. Here was a structure that had stood since 1878, and I thought, those logs are still good. They're, you know, wouldn't it be great to reuse them? So last year, a crew of trail club members descended on the property and, like a busy ant colony, deconstructed the cabin bit by bit. Lou Schutze was there. It was quite a job. First, they tore out all the interior structures. Walls and everything, and they were just full of, uh, full of animals and bees and wasps and everything else. And then um, we had to get it down to the bare logs and, and then took it down a log at a time. But that was the easy part. On this day, in the shadow of old rag, things aren't going too well for the volunteer construction crew. Put one on the end, uh-huh. then figure out where the other one is. I think you can handle it, right? Yeah. It's clear <laughs> as the year's own chicken. <laughs> hey, well, there'll be a little something extra in your paycheck. Yeah, what's two times zero, <laughs> zero. Now, or three times zero? Great. Have all the holes drilled along the middle? Eddie Moroski has spent a frustrating day fixing an unfortunate mistake. There's vents that are required on the foundation, and somehow one was missed. In September, the crew finished the lovely stone and concrete foundation, only to discover they didn't leave enough holes for vents under the cabin. 
so Murawski has spent most of his Saturday in the dark crawl space, drilling and sawing and chiseling and hammering through the thick concrete. This, this, it's this thick, it's ten inches thick. Plus there's rebar in there. You know what rebar is? I think there's a piece of rebar right in the middle of this, holding it together. <laughs> we've had more problems today than we've had the whole time we've been building. We had to send somebody off to buy gas because we don't have a spare gas can. The generator stopped, the air compressor died. But we're having fun. Mark Allen is working on the subfloor above the foundation. I love it up here, being in the woods. I love uh, building things, so I'm right at home and happy. The new cabin won't be exactly the same as the original. The crew's adding an addition for a kitchen and bathroom, and they're redesigning it to be handicapped accessible. Lori Birch, who donated the cabin, is pleased it will be available to as many people as possible. As much as I would have loved to have had it and had it as a wonderful structure on my property, I would have been the only one using it, you know, other than me and family and friends. There's no date yet for when the cabin will be finished. When it is, it will be one of some 40 that the club rents to hikers, mostly along the Appalachian Trail. And in this busy location, it's likely to be one of the most popular. I'm Jacob Fenston. Want to see the reconstructed cabin for yourself? We have photos on our website, metroconnection.org. And that's Metro Connection for this week. We heard from WAMU's Jacob Fenston, Brian Russo, Jonathan Wilson, Michael Martinez, and Martin Ostermule. WAMU's managing editor of news is Memo Lyons. Metro Connection's managing producer is Tara Boyle. Lauren Landau is our editorial assistant. Our intern is Stephen Yenzer. Lauren Landau and John Hines produce Door to Door. Thanks, as always, to the WAMU engineering and digital media teams for their help with production and the Metro Connection website. Our theme song, Every Little Bit Hurts, and our door-to-door theme, No Girl, are from the album Title Tracks by John Davis and used with permission of the Ernest Jennings Record Company. You can find all the music we use each week on our website, metroconnection.org. Just click on a story, and you'll find information about its accompanying song. And if you missed part of today's show, you can stream the whole thing on our website by clicking the This Week on Metro Connection link. You can also subscribe to our podcast there or find us on iTunes, Stitcher, and the NPR News app. We hope you can join us next week when we'll wax philosophical about wisdom. From the wisdom of local gardeners to the lessons learned by D.C. kids who've tangoed with the law. Plus, the truth about a groundbreaking document written by a wise leader of yore. For something that has been studied so intensively for the last 150 years, there's still so many mysteries about it. I'm Rebecca Shear, and thanks for listening to Metro Connection, a production of WAMU 88.5 News.